Vincent Werbeck's Derby. Good evening all. It's lovely to see all of your faces uh, tonight. Um, we are continuing our series on the book of Acts. I think this is our third or fourth week uh, on a whistle-stop tour through maybe one of the most action-packed books uh, in the Bible. Um, our key verse this evening, if you've got a Bible and you want to sort of put your thumb in it, or if you've got a Bible on your phone and you want to load it up, or if you don't have a Bible, I've got a few here, you can come and take one if you'd like. Um, or there's some Bibles just the other side of the pillar. If you'd like one, it's possibly the greatest gift we can give to you, so please feel free to uh, go and grab one. But we're going to be looking um, at the text today, is all the way from Acts 6 verse 8. Uh, to 9.31. So we're going to be jumping around a bit in between those chapters um, together today. And this section of Acts, these three chapters, um, is like any other section in Acts, really. It reads a little bit like a movie script. It's full of quite remarkable and breathtaking stories of a God at work amongst the early followers of Jesus. In this short section, uh, we're faced with Stephen's martyrdom, the persecution of the early Christians, uh, particularly by Saul the paralyzed and lame being healed, miracles taking place, uh, someone seeing the power of the Holy Spirit at work and trying to buy it. They saw God at work and said, oh, give me that. How much does it cost? Uh, Philip leading the Ethiopian eunuch to salvation and then baptizing him there and then. And then finally, and maybe most amazingly, uh, Dorcas being resurrected. Literally, she was dead, Peter prayed for her, and she came back to life. It is really quite a remarkable couple of chapters of Scripture. And so today we're going to be focusing most of our time on the story of Stephen, his martyrdom, and then the persecution of the early followers of Jesus that followed that. We're going to be thinking, what, does that mean? what did that mean for the early Christians, and therefore, what does it mean for us today? God has a habit of using adversity to bring about greater fruitfulness than we could ever imagine. God is an expert of bringing triumphs out of setbacks. But I guess I would like to ask the question before we unpick this. Why on earth do we suffer or face adversity or persecution? Sometimes the cause can be a total mystery. At other times it just seems like life is unfair and sometimes we can identify the source. And as one famous theologian said, sometimes we suffer because we make stupid decisions. And some of you uh, may know um, that I quite like my running. Um, I enjoy rubbing, running as a hobby. Um, uh, that might, some of you may relate, some of you may not. Um, but in fact, to be honest, I just love competitive sports. Uh, for us, sort of my teenage years and my 20s, I just loved playing uh, cricket and football. But as you get older, you realize, well, in reality, your wife keeps telling you um, that actually it takes up too much time. Training twice a week, uh, you know, playing sport all day on a Saturday, socializing with your sport friends for the season of life, it just is a bit demanding. So in 2017, as a good husband, I stopped playing football and cricket as much, and I decided um, to take up running. I thought this would be a way for me to keep fit, continue to uh, get a bit of a competitive uh, fix. But I guess the, the, the problem occurs that as you uh, run, the more you run, the more you want to run, and it becomes quite addictive, trying to get faster and trying to run further. And so what started out as a sport that I began to do because I'd fit it around my life actually became just as all-consuming um, as any other sport I used to play. 
To the point where um, I've been training for a marathon since about Christmas, um, and I, I've actually been getting a bit nervous that I've not been able to fit in as many runs. And so quite a few times uh, now, I've been setting my alarm for 4.45 uh, before the day starts so I can get out and get a good sort of 10 or 15 kilometers in before I start school. And um, just because I get nervous, I'm not getting in as many runs as I should. Um, and Esther, who is my wife, she has to put up with this, has been saying to me for a while, you just need to chill out, Dan. Um, she's been telling me to stop running so much, and I've been doing what every good husband does and ignoring her. Uh, she said to me, um, and th these are quotes, by the way, all this running is making you too skinny, Dan. Uh, she told me, you're no longer the man I married in 2011, with bursting biceps and broad shoulders, and I told her I'm not sure that was ever true, um, but she was convinced it was. And she now affectionately refers to me as the rake, um, and she, when, if I'm standing sideways in front of her, she sometimes makes a joke, where's Dan gone? I think he's disappeared. Um, so really why I'm here tonight, um, Esther didn't come back because I'm telling this story. She was here this morning, refused this evening. Uh, but I'm telling this story just for a bit of sympathy, really, and for you to build my ego a little bit later on. But Esther also says, not only has it affected the way my body looks, uh, but also the only reason I really run is for my own ego. Uh, you know, to beat a personal best and to beat my friends that are also running marathons this spring. She said to me, oh, why can't you just do it for fun, Dan? Why can't you just do an occasional park run? And I sort of glazed over at that point because it felt like she was talking a different language. I mean, what on earth is the point of sport unless you're competing or trying to beat someone else? And I know right now I'm giving you far too much of an insight into some serious character flaws of mine that somehow the competitive instincts make their way to the surface far more frequently than I would like. But, but this all sort of came to a head on Thursday this week. I'm a teacher. I've been on half term. And um, I, I sort of saw half term as an opportunity to run as much as I possibly could. Um, and Thursday I planned in my long run. Um, it, it was really windy, it wasn't great weather, and I probably ran a little faster than I should have for how far I was running. Anyway, I got home from this run, I had something to drink and I was sick everywhere. I know it's not the details you need, I'm sorry, um, you've probably just eaten your dinner, but I was sick everywhere, I tried to eat something, I was sick everywhere again, um, and Esther really wasn't very sympathetic at all. Um, and our um, Werbs group is on a Thursday night at our house. Uh, and the doorbell rang. I wasn't feeling on best form. I opened the door. I said hello to the guest. I then ran away to be sick in the sink. Um, and so it really wasn't a great night. I'm just hoping they all come back uh, next week. But I, I suffered pretty badly, or at least I felt like it was uh, bad. Maybe I'm being melodramatic uh, on Thursday. And I received zero sympathy from Esther. But as we will find with the life of Stephen... Uh, suffering, adversity, and pain is so often the ingredients that God uses for fruitfulness and triumph. If we will allow him, so often God uses our worst moments to become a catalyst for triumph and breakthrough. And that is what we see with the story of Stephen and the early Christians. And for me, although I know a completely trivial example, and I apologize for that, my, my suffering on Thursday night has been used for a greater good. I now know more clearly than ever that wives are always right. A lesson uh, I'll treasure, or at least try to, and remember for a long time to come. Esther's even encouraged me to get it tattooed on my arm so that I don't forget. But our text today um, opens up with Stephen, who's described as a man full of grace and power, doing great wonders, clearly being used powerfully by God, and eventually killed for his proclamation of the good news of Jesus as Lord and King. This uh, 
the death of Stephen would have seemed like a major defeat uh, for the early Jesus followers. It says in Acts 8 verse 2, which I think is going to appear up there, it says that devout men or holy men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him or they mourned deeply for him. And the Greek word that's translated as mourned in the NIV or lamentations in the ESV, it comes from the word kapoto, which means to cut or hit and means literally to beat one's chest as a sign of intense grief. The followers of Jesus that we meet in the book of Acts are normal Christians just like you and I. The untimely and barbaric death of Stephen would have sent shockwaves through the early followers of Jesus. And sometimes I know for myself, particularly um, having been reading through the book of Acts as we're reading it as a church, I distance myself from those early Christians. I think, my goodness, what they saw, what they did, uh, the power of God on display, that, that can't be possible for us. Or at least it's not my experience in everyday life. And so I kind of remove myself from that. Um, and I think, well, they're like the superhero Christians. What they saw, what they did, their obedience to Jesus, it's just different now. I can't relate. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that too. But these early Christians we read about, uh, they experience pain and is expressed in immense grief and anguish. Just like you and I grieve and suffer as life doesn't go the way we planned it. Or we're faced with circumstances that seem wholly unfair or even evil. Whether that's the death of a loved one, financial difficulty, sickness, persecution for our faith, relationship breakdown or anything else. We suffer in life just like those early Christians suffer. Pain and hardship is sadly one of the tragic certainties of life on our broken planet. I guess the question being asked by Stephen and these early Christians that we read about is how will we respond when we're faced with situations which are uncomfortable or difficult or that we haven't planned? Acts 6 verse 8, uh, I summarized it earlier, it says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And we can deduce uh, from this text that, that actually often, not always, but often, um, as you step out for God, you face opposition and challenge. And over the years, many people have uh, categorized opposition and challenge into three camps. Actually, we face challenge and we suffer because of three uh, different aspects of life. The first being the world in which we live in, which is broken and not perfect. Uh, secondly, the flesh, i.e. ourselves, the decisions we as human beings make. And thirdly, the devil. There is uh, someone out there that does not have the best intentions for us. And so evil, suffering, pain, generally it might come from one of those or a, a, a sort of gathering of all three. It's the world, the flesh and the devil. And I'm not here in the short time we have together today to, to tell you what is what or do an expose on evil and suffering. But the point is that we all face opposition, challenge and suffering, but the cause is so often complicated. We could spend the rest of our time together exploring some different theories on why we suffer. But in my experience, none of them offer a complete solution or make you feel any better because you just leave with a bit more head knowledge, but actually your circumstances and the challenge you're facing remains the same as you leave this evening. And so as I was preparing this talk and looking at the life of Stephen, I just sensed God saying to me that my job today is to help us maximize the opportunity that arises when we're faced with challenge and suffering. And that is exactly what we see on the pages of Scripture we are looking at today. What seemed like defeat 
for the early followers of Jesus is actually the most pivotal and central moment in the whole book of Acts and the mission of Jesus on earth. We read a few weeks ago in our first week on the book of Acts, in Acts 1 verse 8, that Jesus' mission was really quite simple. It was for his followers to wait here until they'd receive power from the Holy Spirit and then go and, to, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Up until this point in the book of Acts, the good news message uh, that Jesus King has just been for Jerusalem, those living in Jerusalem. And uh, Phil's key verse, and I'm going to read Phil's key verse from last week's uh, preach, and then our key verse, Acts 9.31. And I want you to try and work out what's similar between the two and what's different. Phil's key verse said this, And the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples greatly multiplied in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. And our key verse, Acts 9.31, says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the similarity between the two is that the church grew. The good news spread. People got saved and they were added to. That's what's similar between those two verses. But the key difference is uh, where we got up to last week, uh, Phil's key verse, the good news was just for Jerusalem. We reach the end of chapter 9 and the good news has spread beyond the borders of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. So what has Stephen got to do with all of this? The story of Stephen's martyrdom acts as the bridge or transition between part 1 of the book of Acts and part 2. Stephen's death marks the end of part 1 and part 2, the good news of Jesus spreads to Judea and Samaria. Jesus' vision in Acts 1 verse 8 that the good news is for all nations is coming to pass. But it's probably not how the disciples imagined it. It's not through force or military rule or power, but it's through persecution and suffering as the catalyst. And how often in our lives uh, do we assume God might work one way, but actually God works most fruitfully through the things that are challenging in our lives, through the suffering, through the pain. God brings breakthrough and transformation and purpose in our lives. And the beginning of chapter 8, straight after Stephen's death, it says a great persecution arose against the church of Jerusalem, and the believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And, and we read this in the light of the whole book of Acts, and in the light of Acts 1 verse 8, and think, isn't that fantastic? Isn't that fantastic? The early Christians, they were, they were persecuted. They were scattered. How amazing that is, because it meant the good news spread beyond Jerusalem. And we kind of see the whole story, and we think, what a great story. How amazing that they were scattered. But can you imagine being in their shoes? They didn't know the end of the story. These Jesus followers left behind jobs and homes and friends and communities. They left behind everything they knew and loved for absolute uncertainty because Jesus was their king above all else. As they fled Jerusalem, it must have seemed like a defeat or at least absolute weakness as they fled from the power structures of the day to simply survive. But in the kingdom, weakness and seeming defeat is great opportunity for our Lord to move in power. What was true then is true for us now. And we know the ultimate example of this was Jesus' work on our behalf on the cross. What seemed like weakness as he hung on the cross to die as a criminal, humiliated and mocked, was actually the greatest victory this world has ever seen. Three days later, Jesus defeated death once and for all and now offers you and I eternal life with him. Our God is in the business 
of turning seeming defeats and weakness into victory and strength. You know, if a group of Christians has ever been entitled to hit the dirt and lie low for a while, it was this bunch of scattered refugees who made new homes in Judea and Samaria and Damascus and Antioch and even as far as Cyprus, according to later texts in Acts. They had every excuse to go into hiding and play it safe. But that isn't the story we read. Luke tells us in Acts 8 verse 4 that they shared the good news of Jesus wherever they went. So I guess as we transition into the, sort of the final bit of this talk and the next part of the story, I would, I would like to pose a question to you. What is a challenge in your life you're facing? What difficulties are you going through? What suffering are you facing that you didn't plan and you're just fed up of? I have all sorts of unanswered questions, questions about suffering and pain, both in my past and in my present. Why was that loved one taken so early? Why has that illness not been healed? Why have I been praying for that same thing for five years and nothing has shifted? I'm sure we can all relate to unanswered prayers, questions that we're unsure of. But you know what? I'm convinced the early Christians asked the same questions. I imagine the most pertinent one was why on earth did God save the lives of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 but not the life of Stephen in Acts chapter 7? It's okay to have unanswered questions. But what you need to be sure about is where you'll put your trust in the midst of adversity. The way of the world is to make destructive life choices, to go into our shell, to, to retreat, to count our losses, to hide away when we face adversity. But Jesus says, I'm with you, I love you, do you trust me? If you can put your trust in Jesus, if you can depend on him when life gets tough, he will turn your ashes into beauty. He will bring resurrection life and he will use you as a beacon beacon of hope for others. It isn't the only way God works. But when you look at the pages of scripture and church history, persecution and setbacks are so frequently used to bring greater fruitfulness and breakthrough. You know, the early followers of Jesus, they didn't retreat, they didn't blame others, they didn't press the self-destruct button, they simply told people about Jesus. Will we be a people that when life gets tough, we excuse ourselves? We just go, it's just too difficult, I just can't do it anymore, I can't turn up to church, I can't pray, I can't face the Bible because life just doesn't make sense. I'm going to go my own way, I'm washing my hands with it, I need to make my own mistakes. It's just too tough. Or will we, like the early Christians, press further into Jesus' life gets tough? Will we lean more on Jesus as we face adversity? Will we continue to be obedient to him even when life doesn't make sense? Because that is the recipe for God using our challenging life circumstances to bring great transformation and blessing. What we know about these early followers of Jesus is that they trusted God in their adversity and God makes persecution serve the Great Commission. You know, we we can't go back in time, so we don't know whether the early followers of Jesus may have awakened to their calling eventually to take the good news beyond Jerusalem. But I wonder, I wonder if they were just comfortable. They were just comfortable in the city of Jerusalem, they liked their neighbours, they liked their jobs, life was good, and so they were happy just sharing the good news in Jerusalem. I wonder if being comfortable stopped them from fulfilling the mission Jesus had for them to take the good news beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Because the fact is, God used persecution to move his people into the mission he had given them. 
And maybe today, your circumstances that just don't seem to make sense, maybe God wants to use them to move you into the purpose that he has for you. Or maybe on the flip side, maybe the pursuit of comfort and the avoidance of pain above all else is holding you back from walking in the purpose that God currently has for you. You know, um, the, the lesson that we find here from Stephen in this text is of course that God is sovereign and turns our setbacks to triumphs, our ashes into beauty and our weakness into strength. But it also goes a bit further than that. The lesson is that comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety, they often cause a tremendous inertia in followers of Jesus and therefore the church. And an inertia is uh, the tendency for something which is standing still to stay standing still and for something which is moving to keep moving in the direction to just keep going with the flow or just to stay where you are because it's comfortable, because it's easy. And what what I mean by that is often um, the Western values that we hold so dear, uh, and I know I do often, and you know the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of comfort and security above all else can actually prevent us from pursuing the purpose that God has for us. Because the, the pursuit of comfort means we will resist change. One commentator goes as far to say that Christianity can never coexist with comfort. He says the more we align ourselves with God's will and the mission of Jesus on earth, the more uncomfortable we become. Because actually what we see is what God's intention is for this earth, and then we realize what's actually going on on this earth, and it makes us uncomfortable because we recognize that we are actually the vessels meant to bring about God's purposes on this earth. That actually living in obedience to Jesus will always make us, as Jesus followers, uncomfortable. You know, and the truth is, we don't necessarily pursue these worldly values as a conscious choice. It just seeps in over time because we are in this world. And, you know, the very things that we think would produce greater commitment and investment of time and money to the mission of Jesus, actually more often than not does the opposite. You know, more money, more comfort, more security can actually be one of the greatest risks uh, to the disciples of Jesus. You know, Jesus tells us this himself in the parable of the four soils. Jesus tells a parable about uh, different people that hear the word and then respond differently. And of course, some do fall away due to persecution because they're not rooted deeply enough in Jesus. And so when life gets tough, they just go, whoa, this isn't for me, and they're out. But actually, it seems that even more people are like the third soil. And it's described in Mark 4, 19, which I think will come up on the screen. Jesus describes it as this. The cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I wonder how often comfort, you know, the pursuit of the things of this world uh, does that for us. Persecution absolutely can have harmful effects on the church. But comfort and ease, it seems, is even more devastating to the mission which God calls us. You know, my point here, of course, is not that we should seek uh, persecution or pain. Of course not. That is certainly not my instruction to you tonight. But I do believe, as I've been doing this week, as I've been preparing this, that we might want to do a bit of a priority audit in our own lives. You know, we are habitual people after all, and everything we do is doing something to us for better or for worse. And we want to be formed into the ways of Jesus and not the ways of this world. And so by just taking a step back for a moment, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal the desires and the priorities of our heart and just going, well, where do they align? 
Do they align more with the ways of this world or do they align more with the ways of the kingdom of heaven? And I'm sure there's some things for all of us where we've just allowed you know, worldly ways just to seep in little by little, compromise here, compromise there, because we live in a world which has an agenda which is different to Jesus's, and therefore it affects us. Sometimes taking a step out, doing a bit of priority audit really does help. And just asking the Holy Spirit to lead us through that. Because we can't change on our own. We can't think our way to change. We have to submit to the Holy Spirit's leadership because we are constantly bombarded by the world's way of working. So through those intentional disciplines, like coming to church, like praying, like reading scripture, like having a mentor, like joining a words group, we fill ourselves more with the ways of Jesus' kingdom than this world. You know, the truth is, Christians throughout history who have devoted their lives to Jesus in complete obedience have always faced greater opposition and challenge. And it's a hard message because what it means to be radical for Jesus probably means we will face more opposition, more challenge. But the pages of scripture and church history shows us that the reward of closeness to Jesus and fruitfulness for the extension of his kingdom is an immeasurable reward. We see that with Stephen who somehow in his last moments has such peace and joy as he's stoned to death. And we see that with the early Christians. They're scattered from everything they knew and loved and they just go and tell people about Jesus. So as we finish, I ask you the question that I've been asking this week. Are you willing to live undeniably for the culture of the kingdom of heaven and under the conviction that Jesus is the ultimate king, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what circumstances you face? That's what Stephen did. That's what the early followers of Jesus did. And they saw quite remarkable things because of it. It led to great joy, a heavenly peace, unbelievable fruitfulness, mind-blowing displays of the power of God. And the church grew rapidly day by day. And if we as a community carry these same convictions, I'm absolutely convinced that what the early church experienced and saw is possible for us today. The same God they worshipped and prayed to in Acts is the same God that's here today. Their fruitfulness was because of their obedience to God's leading. And so we're going to respond uh, together tonight. In fact, we're all going to respond. I know some people will come down and pray. But in a moment, as you stand and worship, and we sing a song about the sovereignty of God over all of our circumstances and seasons, and we commit to be obedient to him, that is our response. That we're declaring before God that I trust you. Even when life doesn't make sense, even when things don't add up, even when I'm broken, I trust you. And I will be obedient to you. That is our response to God tonight. But I also believe there's a few people um, here uh, specifically that might want to respond and come down here and get some prayer um, as we respond tonight. And the first group of people, um, I think there are some people here today um, who are right in the midst of a storm. Right in the midst of suffering and adversity and pain. And you need prayer to know the closeness and comfort of a God who loves you and longs to draw near in your pain. You know, as part of that, I also sense that you need prayer to receive strength to remain faithful to God in this season when everything is telling you to go your own way. You know, maybe you're here tonight on a last ditch. I'm going to give God one more go. And if God doesn't come through with me, then I'm done. I'm going my own way. God wants to give you strength tonight that you might be able to lean on him and not yourself to get you through uh, this season.
The second group of people, um, you know, maybe uh, just like I did this week, you felt a sense of conviction from the Holy Spirit when I was talking about comfort and security. And you need uh, to respond tonight to ask the Holy Spirit to give you strength and boldness to reorder your priorities. That you, just like these early followers, might love being obedient to Jesus above all else. <laughs>